Hi, this is Levi. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to take a quick minute to introduce a few of the other podcasts in the WCF Podcast Network. Tom and Naomi are exploring how we interact in our ecclesial relationships in From the Platform. It's a very in-depth series that is incredibly helpful for understanding and developing compassion and better listening practices. That's From the Platform. Sam Taylor from Cleveland, Ohio, produces weekly devotionals in Pause to Consider. Think uh, Mr. Rogers meets uh, Fireside Chat. I love Sam's humble style and think every episode is fantastic. You can find both of those wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at wcfoundation.org. Now, here's the show. Welcome back to A Little Faith. This is a podcast sponsored by the Williamsburg Christadelphian Foundation. A Little Faith podcast explores both the challenges and hope of living a life of faith. I'm Steve, and I'm here again with Carmel Page, who's going to continue to share some of her storytelling skills with us. We're also going to explore how we can engage an audience and incorporate storytelling into many aspects of our church experience. That's terrific, Carmel. Can you show us another one? Okay, um, one of my favourite stories is called The Woman Who Stuck Her Neck Out. Once there was a man, a big man with a big head and a short neck. And his name was Nabal. And it was hard for him to turn his head from side to side. But he did not need to, because Nabal had a thousand goats, he had three thousand sheep and he had enough shepherds to do all his work for him. So he could sit in his house and look outside the window and there on the hills around about he saw his men doing his work and he did not need to look to left or right. But one day Nabal was there in the marketplace. It was a busy day. There were lots of people around. The hubbub, the shouting of the stallholders, the smell of the fresh bread and the fish, the busyness of selling his wares. And he saw the most beautiful woman walk past and she turned his head and he said, I am going to marry her. And if you are the big man who lives in the big house on the hill, you can choose for yourself who you marry. And soon the arrangements were made. And Abigail went to live with Nabal in his house. And she was a good wife. And when she got to this house, she looked about her and she could see what needed to be done. But Nabal did not want a wife to give him instructions. He needed nothing, for he could sit in his chair and look straight ahead at the hills, at his thousand goats and three thousand sheep and his shepherds doing his bidding. And he wanted for nothing else. But one day, as he was looking out across the fields, He saw a great army of men approaching 
and he heard that it was David. David, with 600 men, came and encamped in the fields round about on a hilltop across from where he lived. And Nabal was not happy. Nabal did not trust David. And he said to his shepherds, I want you to keep your eyes on him. I want you to come every day and tell me what he does. And each day, the shepherds came back in the evening to report to Nabal. And Nabal was in his chair, looking out. And they came and stood beside him. Yes, what have you seen? And the shepherds reported, Please, sir, this man David, he is a wonderful man. He, he never causes us any problems, but he actually helps us to look after your flocks. He helps us to protect them and, and he's a man we can trust. Hmm. Keep watching him. And each day they came back and told him the same. And Nabal was not happy for he knew it was custom that if someone came and encamped around near you, that you offered them hospitality and you offered them food. And this man, David, he had 600 men with him, 600 mouths, 600 bellies. And he thought, I will just pretend he is not there. And yet all day he sat there looking out angry that this man was on the hill across from him. Now one day, David said to some of his servants, I want you to go and visit Nabal and tell him that I am here and we will see if he offers hospitality to us. And so David's servants, they set off from the hill where David was down into the valley and up to the house where Nabal lived. And he was sitting in his chair, looking out across the fields and the men from David came and stood beside him. Yes, what do you want? Please, sir, they said, we are David's men and he has asked us to come to you. And he asks if you can offer us any food and I have not heard of this, David. You could be anybody. How do I know who you are? Go away. And those men left. Nabal was pleased with himself. And those men, they went back down into the valley and up to where David was camped. And they explained to David exactly what Nabal had said. And David was so cross. How dare he? How dare he treat me so rudely? Get my sword and get 400 of my men and arm them and we will go and meet this Nabal. Fortunately, some of the shepherds who'd been asked to keep their eye on David, they heard what happened. And the fastest one ran as fast as he could down from that hill into the valley and up to the house where Nabal lived. And he ran straight to Abigail. Please, please, can I speak to you? And Abigail was busy, but she stopped what she was doing and she turned to the shepherd. Whatever is it? What's the matter? 
And the shepherd explained that David was coming with 400 soldiers because Nabal had refused them food. And Abigail said, quick, quick, into the kitchen, quick, get that bread, get the flour, get the dried fruit, get that wine, get the lambs and get donkeys, lots of donkeys, and load all this food up onto the donkeys and send it down into the valley towards David and get one more donkey for me. And so they took her a donkey. Now, if you are wearing a long dress, you cannot ride a donkey except by sitting side saddle. And Abigail sat on that donkey, but she did not look sideways. She looked where she was going. And that donkey set off down from the hill where Nabal lived and into the valley. And she saw David coming. She saw this huge cloud of 400 men descending into the valley, the sun glinting on their swords and through the ground. She could hear the thump, thump, thump of those soldiers marching. She could smell the violence in the air. And on the other side of the hill, David is coming down and his anger in his heart and he sees donkeys coming towards him. He says, what is this? Is this some trick that that man Nabal is playing on me? And from the last donkey, a young woman alights right before him and she lays at his feet. A young woman, unprotected. She has no weapon, she has no armour, she has no protection and she lies before him on the ground and she says please sir accept me as a humble servant for my husband Nabal he is a fool please forgive me sir for I am your servant and I did not know that you had asked for food and please sir accept this food as a gift and if you do this thing and if you do not fight this day then Surely God will bless you. And David stood there on the hill. He felt the, felt the breeze in his hair. He had his hand on his sword. 400 soldiers just waiting for the command to attack. And on the ground, a young woman. And David was utterly humbled and he sent his soldiers away, back up the hill. And he stood there looking at this woman and he said, if you had not come, I had so much anger in my heart that I would not have stopped until I had slayed every man in Nabal's household. And you have saved me. He realised that he, he was just fighting over food. And he realised that he had been a fool too. And he thanked this young woman. And he said, please, go in peace. And he turned away. And he walked back up 
to his camp. And Abigail got up and she led the donkey home. But she did not entirely go in peace for in her heart she knew that she must tell Nabal what she had done and she knew he would be very angry with her. But she had to tell him. So as soon as she got home, she looked about her to see where he was and she heard that he was having a banquet to celebrate the fact that he had not shared his food with anybody else. And she opened the door of the banqueting hall and she looked in and she saw that he was very drunken. And she decided it was not the right time to talk to him. The next morning, she knew as soon as she woke, she must go straight to Nabal. She must confess that she had given away so much food. And she went to him first thing. And she told him what she had done. And he was so angry. How dare you? How dare you? I will... And in his anger... He collapsed on the ground. He had to be lifted up and laid on his bed. He was so ill from anger that for 10 days he laid on his bed and then he died. Now, away on the hill on the other side of the valley, David heard that Nabal had died. And he realised that Abigail would be very vulnerable as a widow. And he realised that she was an incredibly wise woman. And she was a brave woman. And I suspect he also noticed that she was a very beautiful woman. And so for a second time, David sent messengers from his hill into the valley and up to Nabal's house. And the messengers were to ask Abigail if she would marry David. And so for a second time, Abigail called for the donkeys and she loaded them up with her possessions and she took her maidservants with her. And again, she sat side saddle on her donkey. But she did not look sideways. She looked ahead to her future, to her husband. And David came down the hill on the other side. And this time he walked, not with anger in his heart, but with love. And the two of them met and they were married. Now, I wonder if David thought about the fact that Abigail had said to him, she had prophesied and she had said that if you do not fight this day, you will be blessed. I wonder if David just thought about the fact that by marrying Abigail, he was blessed. For he had this wife who was very wise and very brave and very beautiful. In Abigail, he had a wife who, when there was a crisis, was prepared to stick her neck out. 
Carmel, that's terrific. Uh, brought those stories to life. Let's say I wanted to do a better job at uh, in in a talk. Is there a way to to incorporate storytelling then into my Sunday exhortation when I'm asked to speak on something and I, I pick a subject and there's something in it that, that lends itself to that. What what would advice would you give me or how would you suggest I prepare that? I, I think your question's interesting because you're asking how would you prepare it? And that's only half of the question. Because the other question is how would I deliver it? No. So the stories that I tell I think a lot about the content of the story, the actual material that I'm going to use, but I also talk, think about how I'm going to deliver it. So in a sense, you could say, what's the difference between somebody writing a talk and actually they could just send it you by email and someone else could read it, or the person who did it actually being there. And I think a lot of that is we talk about the things we feel passionate about and we talk about the things that we can really relate to ourselves. And that's what comes across is your passion and your emotion. So I think whatever story you're telling, whether it's something that happened to me last week or a story from the Bible, you have to talk about the emotions in the story. So if you think of that story about the Emmaus Road, um, we started off by talking about how they felt. And in the story with Nabal, we started off talking about how, how he felt, what his position in society was and how he felt and how he felt when he saw Abigail. So I always work with the emotions because they, they transport the facts. You know, facts are really important, but the way that you make those facts come alive is to deal with the emotions that are behind them. Mm -hmm. So that's really good. Um, another thing that people do when they're telling stories is we're, we're a very visual culture. So we tend to talk about what you can see. And actually, the way we experience the world is that we have five senses. And... Um, so going back to those two men walking along the Emmaus Road, I talked about how it felt, the sun beating down on their heads, mm -hmm. and about the smell and taste of the dust. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to kind of transport people into a story and to kind of enchant people and, and get them there with you. You can really enrich the story experience if you use all of the senses, that makes a huge difference. But, and then there's the thing about how you deliver the story. So if you're actually up and you're there and you're doing it and you're acting and you show <coughs> that it means something to you. Mm -hmm. um, I know a friend of mine said to me once, I really love it when you tell stories. And I said, well, why? What is it about my stories? And she said, I love it when you go like that. And I thought, what on earth does she mean I don't go like that? And then I thought, yes, because you go like that when you're going, and suddenly, and then like the action happens. And I think you have to put energy 
into a story. So if you're behind a podium and you're reading notes or you're speaking from notes, it's not kind of an energetic activity. It's, it's very sort of sedentary. Even when you're standing up, it's very still and very controlled. And I think when you tell a story, you have to tell it with everything. You have to tell it with your head, because if it doesn't start with the facts in your head, it's not going to be of value to people. You have to tell it with your heart. If it's not coming from your heart, people won't relate to it. You have to tell it with your body, with your energy. You tell it with your voice and the ways that you use your voice, perhaps taking on slightly different characters. And you tell it with your eyes. So I will just pick somebody in the audience and I will just look at one person. And that actually, everybody sees you better if you do that. And then I'll look at somebody else and just tell the story as if there's just the two of us in the world. And that makes it very personal to everybody. So a, a lot of the things that you do as a storyteller are actually skills which are not really complex. You know, they're, they're skills that people can learn and can be taught quite easily, but they take practice. They take a lot of practice. And if it's your habit just to read from notes, that's, you know, you, you've got to work at changing that. It's very different. I was going to ask you then a, a follow-up question is, if all these things related to faith again, that uh, anybody presenting anything about the Bible to another audience is hopefully building up their faith, that's the point, or stimulating them somehow and spiritually and that sort of thing. So what kind of responsibility does that, should that speaker feel, you know, and that would motivate them to do a better job and to actually incorporate some things like uh, that you've suggested that you've shown us. Yeah, it it always feels like a huge responsibility to me because, um, well, I suppose the best example I can give actually of the responsibility that there is, is when I did the story of the Good Samaritan. And I actually, um, I got the audience to do a chant, which was, don't go to Samaria, it's a bad area. Don't go there or you'll come back dead. And every time a character came on, so the, um, the, the young man came on and he saw a sign that said Jerusalem this way and Samaria that way. And he thought, now which way shall I go? And you know, don't you, what they say? Don't go to Samaria, it's a bad area. Don't go there or you'll come back dead. And then, after I'd told that story a few times, I discovered that there are still people alive who are Samaritans. And I realised that I'd been teaching a racist chant. And you just think, whoa, what have I done? What have I done? It is a huge responsibility huge and I think you have to yeah you have to be very sure of what you're doing and what tends to happen to me is I read a bible story and then I start imagining in my head how it might be and I kind of create all these extra bits and and kind of think "Mm, probably like this and probably like that because 
until a few hundred years ago, when people told stories, they said what people did and what people said. Stories did not include what people thought. It just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So I tend to add in the emotions, add in what people thought, and I can get quite carried away in the story. And then I actually have to stop and go back and reread chapter and verse. Um, and in fact, I did that this morning with both of those stories. Mm. I just went back and read the chapter and verse so that I was sure I knew how much of that story was from the Bible and how much was sort of the bits I was adding to make it more accessible. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if a lot of those, the oral history idea and that things, depending on your point of view as to when these, uh, when the Old Testament was written, uh, but even so, if a lot of these stories about David and Abigail, whatever, were told before being written down, weren't read, do you think that's true? That they they spoke this, these, these, this history that was there? Every culture has its own oral history, mm -hmm. so I'm sure that happened. And even if very early on these things were recorded, not everybody would have had access to that. Mm -hmm. And you know how it is, if you hear a good story, you want to tell it again, don't you? Right. So that has always, always happened. They pushed her out of the window, and you know what? The dogs came and ate her, except for, you know, it's just, what a great story. Yeah. <laughs> Fire fell from heaven, consumed mm. everything. Mm. Um, what do you think could be done within our community to raise the level of the speaking that's done from the, from the podium? Um, I think training is really important. So I think it's good to kind of be aware of what makes a good talk. And I think traditionally we've seen a good talk as being a talk that has good content. And we've not thought that much about the delivery. So our delivery tends to be quite uninspiring. Mm. So I think we get a lot of talks where people have fantastic material, but they don't deliver it well. And, and perhaps we, because that is the normal, we kind of accept it when I think we probably could do better. I, I think we could train, you know, I, I think it would be good if we had more training because we don't have like a paid ministry. If we had a paid ministry, they would have had, what, two or three years on a course learning how to approach people and how to kind of reach out with what they say and touch people mm -hmm. and how to help people. So I think there probably should be more training in just understanding some of the, the sort of basic techniques. And I think we could do more to sort of support each other um, and encourage each other. You know, if you see something that's good, we, we should be saying that. And we should be saying, oh, you know, the talk that someone gave today, that really touched me. Um, again, I think we have a tendency that maybe over the lunch table, we discuss the content of the talk and not so much the style or the delivery of the talk. So if something happens in a talk that you could really relate to, you know, perhaps we should be saying, wasn't it good the way that they did whatever it was? And just trying to raise the expectation a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, encourage that.
mm-hmm. encourage the good performance or the presentation. Yeah. Yeah, good. I actually train authors in what to do at um, author events because a lot of people have written books and that's a very sort of isolated thing that you do. You sit on your own and you write a book and then you find yourself at a meet the author event and you've got all these people and they kind of expect something from you. And so I've trained authors in thinking about what do their audience want, but also in how to read well. Because some people are always going to write their talk out longhand beforehand and just read it. But if you read it well, that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that you can do to improve the way that you read. So whether it's just a, a straight Bible reading or whether it's giving a talk that you're reading... Yeah, there are very simple things that you could actually learn quite quickly and can make a difference. Something I just thought of is I just started listening to uh, Audible, to books on and driving long distances. Um, and in all those, in the good readers they who of those books, they come up with voices for everybody. Mm. So it seems to me that if you're reading a passage and it has characters and voices, you could actually think about doing voices for those characters yeah absolutely and uh, i mean (laughs) that's that's good i I hadn't ever thought of that before it would take everybody by surprise reading bedtime stories to my children i always just automatically did that Mm -hmm. and i suppose i just presumed everybody did it but i do tend to try and find different voices for different characters and it's just those little things that just kind of click in people's ears and wake them up and make them more attentive yeah right it's like that once upon a time mm. and i'm i'm ready to hear or mm. let me tell you a story i might have been thinking about the car payment the painting the house whatever but you hear those let me tell you a story and it's like okay i'm ready yeah yeah, yeah. i think that phrase is really powerful this will be. This is terrific. This yeah. is really worthwhile. Yeah. Yes, because it it just opens eyes to a different style of doing things, which is important. That's what it's what it's about. So. Yeah, and I think there is that thing about, like I've not copied anybody <coughs> else's style. Mm-hmm. I've just been Carmel, telling a story, mm-hmm. or giving a talk, and it's probably harder for men to do that. I think. Mm-hmm. I do goofy stuff all the time. Good for you. The latest talk is how big God is, and so as uh, what God is, but part of it is how big God is. So, in addition to other bits and part pieces, I have um, string, a ball of string, but and then just run around the audience and string it through the audience and say, put it under your arm. I'd put it right through your heart if I could, but I can't. So put it under your arm. And we just thread the audience and have people stand up and then people are going, what is going on? This is the exhortation. (laughs) But that's another thing being interactive, which we haven't talked about. Uh But um, is it me giving a talk to you or is it us doing something together, experiencing something together and working together Mm -hmm. to create something? And 
when you're in the audience, if you're asked to contribute in some way, suddenly you're awake, you're alive, you feel part of it. And if that's happened at the beginning of the talk, you kind of presume it might happen again. And therefore, you're much more likely to stay awake and focus because you know you might have a job to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it then feels like the church belongs to everybody because you're all contributing. And that's beautiful when that happens. 